This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Eastern European Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Eva Glišić, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Yasmina Tumbas about her new book, I Am Yugoslovenka, Feminist Performance Politics During and After Yugoslav Socialism. Yasmina is assistant professor within the Department of Global Gender and Sexuality Studies, University at Buffalo. Her research interests include feminist histories and theories of performance, body and conceptual art, art and activism, socialist film, and contemporary activist art practices by ethnic Roma in the Balkan region. Yasmina, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much. It's so great to be here. Um, Yasmina, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, as you said, you know, I'm a professor at the University of Buffalo currently, um, but I am actually from former Yugoslavia and I've lived in the United States for about 20 years now or like 21 years. I um, also lived in Germany for a long time. Um, we, you know, we left Yugoslavia in the late 80s um, and I ended up finishing my German um, Abitur and then came to the United States in 2001 and pursued my, you know, BA, MA, PhD, and then got a job here, you know. Uh, but in general, as you said, you know, I'm really interested in politics and art and I'm very much invested in teaching and writing about visual literacy and um, how they, visual literacy intersects with you know, gender studies and questions of feminism um, and resistance. So, yeah. Fantastic. And um, Yasmina, your new book, I Am Yugoslovenka has a wonderful title <laughs> and um, it, it examines this unique position of women in Yugoslavia during and after socialism. And this figure of Yugoslovenka and the title of your book uh, is inspired by uh, Lepa Brena's 1989 hit song that we all know and love. Um, and it's, this figure right, it provides a framework for discussing how different women artists experienced um, and contributed to the Yugoslav Emancipatory Project. Um, and I was wondering if you can tell us a, a bit about how you became interested in this, this topic and this area of research. Yeah, that's a great question. A lot of people ask me that first, <laughs> because it is an extremely kind of pop uh, title for an academic book. Um, and as you said, it's an extremely beloved song, but of course, Lipa Brena is also a very contested figure. So she's a very interesting um, um, figure to think about when I think about Yugoslavia. She has been for me. So, but before I go into that, um, as I mentioned earlier, I am from former Yugoslavia. I am from, you know, a child of this nation that no longer exists. And um, I was born there to a Hungarian mother and a Serbian father, but we left when I was seven years old. Um, and then basically I've spent the majority of my life away from the very country I write about. Um, and basically I have a perspective on this Yugoslav you know, uh, country and what happened to it and why it might still be relevant today. So the song in 1989, um, you know, came out when I was already in Germany and I was a young child still. Um, but it meant a lot to us as a family and, of course, to a lot of people who had to leave even later. And because it represented, you know, the celebration of Yugoslavia socialist multiculturalism in a kind of music video that... Uh, really emphasize the kind of peaceful elements of Yugoslav society right before um, the war began. And, you know, she's, as for me, as a scholar of uh, visual 
uh, art and um, of visual culture, for me, it was really interesting that we have this figure, this Lepa Brena, almost like a socialist realist painting, you know, running on the, on the um, you know, fields, holding flowers, a smiling blonde, you know, in a white dress, like the bride of the land. She's also featured in a helicopter with her, you know, braided hair. And she's really singing a lot about how good she feels and um, how um, she's free to be happy in the sun, those kinds of things. And of course, she constantly refers to herself as um I am, you know, Yugoslovenka. So, or Yugoslovenka. Um, so for me, really, that was um, kind of one of the last moments when we think about things historically, where Yugoslavia is really deeply celebrated and it's kind of multi you know, its diversity is multiculturalism. Um, and also she was this super big mega pop star that, uh, you know, is also a very controversial figure. So I thought about like, how can we think about this nation that has perished since um, by looking at not only at this pop song, but at the very idea of identifying with this nation uh, through the female lens, through, you know, this also very complicated female lens. So, um, you know, that was one of the things that really struck me also, of course, as a diasporic person. Um, But then the other thing that uh, motivated me to think about it and uh, that reinforced my decision to write about Yugoslovenka was that there were some cultural moments, uh, contemporary cultural moments that really uh, reinscribed kind of my... um, you know, my will to pursue this. And that were, for example, the Lepabrena project in Belgrade um, that was trying to think through Lepabrena's legacy, uh, is trying to think through Lepabrena's legacy by actually representing her in five different Lepabrenas. And that alone kind of also gave me license to say, okay, Yugoslavia is such a complex story with so many contradictions. And if Lepa Brenna can be represented in five different ways, you know, we can really look at Yugoslavia through, um, you know, also through a feminist lens and tell a different kind of story. So the last thing I'll say about this before we move on is that one of the things I really uh, wanted to change is that Visually, if you think about how the wars have been represented or how Yugoslavia has been represented in the West, a lot of the time we see, you know, a lot of male generals, you know, Karadzic, Mladic, Milosevic, everyone, you know, it's like this extreme militarism. Uh, then we see, you know, uh, starving people, old grandmas uh, with headscarves, you know, a lot of like, um, you know, exploitative images of war. Um, and then, of course, I also write about kind of the, the beautiful women or the beauty contestants that are being represented. But one of the things I wanted to do is shift the perspective and really not think about just a male representation of Yugoslavia, but to think about it through the you know possibilities of thinking through the project in a feminist way. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. And I think that um, evoking this song and this figure of, of Yugoslavia is, is a really powerful strategy to draw audience into your work. Um, it's, a, uh, I, I think, a song that, you know, 30 years on has um, incredible power and is just known by so many people. And there is not a gathering of people from former Yugoslavia that at some point will not play this piece. <laughs> um, so I have to, I have to say that from a personal experience, that is <laughs> certainly the case. Um, and, uh, and I, I think it's, it's your book also does that kind of incredible thing of shifting that perspective, uh, about talking about former Yugoslavia through the figure of, of powerful women, which were, I mean, we would, female figures and, 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 powerful, competent women are really major presence in Yugoslav history and in Yugoslav personal memories. So it's a, it's a, a great lens to, to use here. Um, so you cover work of a number of artists starting from the 70s to, to the present day. Um, and your book opens by highlighting the work of some of the women artists who were part of the Yugoslav avant-garde art scene in the 1970s and 1980s. Um, can you tell us a little bit about their work and their interventions into artistic and sociopolitical debates of that time? 
Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, the, the women really did amazing work in those student cultural centers, but um, they were very much surrounded by a lot of men. So um, it's not like the the women were overpowering the male presence, but actually their works were really powerful interventions in a very male dominated kind of uh, you know male dominated environment that I say in many ways mirrored the more patriarchal elements of socialism in itself, um, the Yugoslav socialist uh, variety. So one of the things that I stress in my book is that um, there was not one, you know, single feminist movement in the arts uh, or in, visual, you know, in, in pop culture that was co- coherent um, or with one kind of idea. But what I really try to do in the book is to make a kind of visual argument that explicates different elements. So like feminist motives and desires and forms of resistance in this like socialist Yugoslav context, but also, you know, trace them through the disintegration uh, until today. But I really look at the 70s because body-centered artwork and conceptual art practices, performance art practices became so important. Um, So in many ways, I'm invested in centering feminist methodologies in this field of embodied and visual art. Um, And so I'll give you one example. I thought it might be interesting to kind of walk us through one visual example. So, um, for example, uh, women really like to play with the question of the flag. Um, Sanja Vekovic is a perfect um, example, one of my favorite works um, that kind of favorite works in terms of really motivating me to rewrite um, the story of Yugoslavia through this female lens when in 1983, you know, she um, revised the socialist flag uh, in a co- in a work called Nova Zvezda, which is a key visual work in the book. Um, so if you envision the tra- traditional Yugoslav socialist, uh, the socialist Yugoslav flag with the kind of blue stripe on top, white stripe in the middle, red stripe on the bottom, and then a red star in the middle, Ivakovic replaced that signature red socialist star with that, with something that looks like, you know, pubic hair arranged in the triangular shape of a female pubis, right where the star would be. So for me, this decision to supersede the red star with female genitalia was a way of centering the female body within the Yugoslav project and interrupting the kind of male-centered patriarchal logic of Yugoslav socialism. So one of the things I try to do in this chapter is to really look at women's performance and body-centered work that comment on this uh, or ex- on, on Yugoslav socialism or expand our understanding of what the socialist state and its relationship to the female body uh, was. And these expressions varied, you know, significantly. But I really loved her rewriting it as this kind of, it's almost like a feminist emblem for me. And I actually write about this quite a bit about how we can also look at an artwork like this um, through um, the lens of, you know, foresight and uh, insight. You know, maybe if we look at Sonia Vekovic's uh, flag as connoting a kind of um, critique of the political 80s, you know, of the moment of the 80s where uh, politics were going more and more towards nationalism, you know, if if politics had gone more towards feminism, maybe something very different would have happened. If the uh, socialist state would have looked to its anti-fascist partisan female fighters, if they had listened to women's work and feminists who were all about transnational solidarities and peace movements, things could have gone very, very differently. But then there's also very different examples like Vlasta Delamar, um, who put the female body and its pleasure really at the center of her performance work pushing for female sexual empowerment within the sphere of an extremely male-dominated, you know, field of art and culture. And she's been also critiqued for this quite a bit. So she's a very interesting example. And uh, one of the things that we have to contend with as scholars of Yugoslavia is that we're dealing with cases that are often... um, you know, that can be understood from multiple angles and that can also be contradictory to one another, they, but they don't necessarily have to cohere in order to have, you know, cam- feminist characteristics. So um, the other more contentious figure that I include, for example, in this work is Marina Abramovic, um, 
which most listeners will be familiar with, I assume, who, you know, um, has often denounced the Yugoslav state, has, you know, made extremely disparaging comments about it, but who's also continually identified with it. But one particular work, I'll give you another example, sort of how I think about how the female body collided with the patriarchal state and what we might read through the decisions these feminist uh, artists or women artists did and what kind of feminist reading we can have of their work is, for example, her Rhythm 5 piece from 1974. Um, which usually is interpreted as her, you know, suffocating from the power of the socialist state. So the setup is, if you imagine, you know, she's like stepping, she's at the Student Cultural Center and she's stepping into a wooden five-pointed star structure, very big structure that could, if, if you lay down in the center, you know, it's laying on the floor, the whole body would fit in, in there. So she like stepped into it, laid down, and the outline of the star was filled with, you know, 100 liters of gasoline, which she lit on fire. So already this is an extremely dangerous artwork. And then she ritually cut her hair and nails and threw her clippings into the fire, stepped into the center of the star and laid down while the flames were, you know, really uh, consuming the oxygen around her. And of course, as time passed, she lost consciousness and was suffering, you know, and passed out. So, you know, this is a very powerful work that has been reproduced so much. I mean, she is the most well-known, I think, female performance artist in the world at this point, and this is actually signature artwork. So I was really intrigued by how we might rethink a work like this that has such a deep socialist iconography, (laughs) the red star, and the female body is at its center. So for me, I really wanted to flip around the reading of the just thinking about, okay, the female body like suffocates, um, she suffocates from the system, and this is her body kind of dealing with that. And thinking about how um, it's also a play on, you know, the strength of, of uh, Yugoslovenka, of having the courage to step into this and to really think about the fundamental strength of a star in space, you know, the different condition, the inherent condition of the star to burn and Abramovich's, you know, decision to place herself within the nucleus of this extremely powerful force, the iconography of Yugoslav socialism, which then translates into Abramovich's will and decision to put her body in danger, which of course translates into a test of survival. For so, for me, this I read this performance, for example, as being iconographically potent with kind of emancipatory meaning, the courage and endurance of Yugoslav women and Yugoslovenka. So, those are just some examples of how I kind of think through. Um, you know, re- rethinking the kind of feminist potential in or privileging the feminist stories of those spaces, because we have a lot of really important research that looks at the colli- collision of the body and politics and the critique of the socialist state that are really important. But um, we also kind of we, we really should privilege other perspectives and um, think through other stories or other histories of those spaces than the more male-centered ones. Um, and of course, the other thing is that there was a lot of feminist organizing within, for example, the Belgrade Student Cultural Center. And so that's something else that really motivated me to um, look at the 70s through this more uh, feminist-centered lens. And that's uh, really interesting. I think your book does a really good job of showing socialist, Yugoslav socialist project, right, as this really emancipatory project where women did have uh, more rights and were in a better, uh, more advanced position even than their counterparts from the West, but that there is this underlying patriarchal structure as well that sort of never really, was never really dismantled um, and that uh, uh, women continue to to face and, and try to, to, to deal with. Um, and also showing the multiplicity of these feminist approaches as well, some of which you say are quite quite complex and contested, um, that there wasn't a kind of a monolith front at the same time. Um, your readers who uh, will also find just the, the importance of, of uh, Marina Bramovic's mother uh, by reading your, your book as a partisan fighter and also this kind of uh, really formidable woman 
who influenced a lot of a lot of her work, uh, which was for me uh, quite a, quite a uh, interesting insight into her her performance work. Um, now, you further complicate the story of, of, of feminist um, uh, and, and feminist movements within Yugoslavia by focusing on the famous uh, Comrade Woman Conference. And there was also an exhibition that went along with the conference. Um, and this was organized by feminist artists and thinkers in Yugoslavia in October uh, 1979. Um, but it also included numerous participants from the West. Um, so can you tell us about this encounter um, and this relationship between Yugoslav and Western feminism? Oh yeah. Um, no, but before I do that, I wanted to comment mm-hmm. <laughs> on on what you said about her mother. This was really fun to include, and actually, uh, her recent memoir, you know, in, inspired me to do so. Um, and so I quote the memoir quite extensively because she privileges, you know, that narrative of her the strength of her mother and uh, the Spartan kind of upbringing and all of these things, which often actually. Uh, contradict some of the more negative things she says about uh, Yugoslavia. But also for me, it was really important um, is because for so many of us, Yugoslovenkas, um, our mothers are very important kind of foundation for our feminism and emancipatory strength. Um, Many of us didn't get this any other way, actually. Um, I can say this for myself through... um, my upbringing in Germany, uh, that, you know, my mother working class, uh, my grandmother working class, no, you know, illiterate actually, and uh, no feminist education. My mother never went to college, uh, but their hard work and their emancipation, you know, that came also through the Yugoslav system had a huge impact on how I understood my rights. And as you said earlier, um, you know, all the the, kind, the questions of abortion and equal pay, I it didn't even occur to me until, you know, my, my teenage years that these things aren't <laughs> a given. I mean, I you know, that and even now we have to still think about this, right? So this was really important to me to privilege these stories of mothers um, that are often kind of, you know, maybe laughed at a little bit or considered not rigorous enough or academic, you know, evidence or whatnot. But it really didn't matter to me because when you speak to women from the region, a lot of them actually talk about this influence. Um, And so that was really important. Um, And yeah, so the 78 conference um, in uh, Belgrade is super important because it was really the first of its kind in Eastern Europe. And that also tells you a lot, you know, this is um, uh, our mothers and grandmothers grew up in a place where this, you know, was possible and where this happened first. And um, I really loved, um, I read uh, Chiara Bonfiglioli's uh, work on this uh, conference, which is a really important um, kind of first, one of the first studies um, that really started to explicate some of the nuances of of the um, conference. And then also I started to kind of read reflections on it by, you know, art historian, curator, extremely important Yugoslovenka, uh, or figure in the history of Yugoslovenka, Buena Page, and thinking about what things they learned from this conference. Of course, it was an important place for um, transnational feminism, for first discussions about uh, some of the critiques of um, the patriarchal foundations within the Yugoslav state. It was really important for collaborative work um, and for publishing more internationally. Um, And as we know, Yugoslavia was really um, not a closed system. It was not part of the Soviet system. Um, Women in Yugoslavia enjoyed uh, mobility and enjoyed the right to publish and right to, you know, travel, etc. Um, so this was, you know, really important to me. But there was, of course, this clash that you're talking about, which was very, very um, foundational for my thinking about the complicated position of Yugoslav women and feminism and how when we look at the local context, we can't tell these simple stories. <laughs> this is probably true for every context, but in the context of Yugoslavia, it was really fun because one of the things that disturbed, for example, the British feminists who came to visit Belgrade was that A, men were present, B, you know, Yugoslav women were dressed super nice, 
really nice nail polish, you know, and I was like, oh, yeah, that's like my mom, you know, I mean, I, I just like immediately thought, uh, even when we were, you know, in the refugee status in Germany, like I was not allowed to leave the house with anything dirty, or let's say, like, you know, how it was, you know, it was a trendy to have those corduroy pants that were like dragging on the floor, like, there's no way, you know, my mother would let her daughter leave the house like this. So it really, I started to connect all these dots, you know, that there's something really interesting about Yugoslavia and the embrace of fashion, the embrace of beauty, um, and it not being uh, contra contradictory to feminist empowerment, but actually a deeply part of it. And that's something that kind of un unnerves a lot of feminist debates. Um, and so I really love this moment. And the other thing that happened that I thought was, of course, for me, very important is the exhibition, Comrade Women, which uh, featured all these portraits of women, um, including a portrait that I really was very keen on finding. So this is also an interesting story of like, how do we write art history books? <laughs> what are the challenges? So Goran Kamatic was one of the organizers of this exhibition. She's an extremely well-known feminist photographer now who's had, you know, recently really important shows, retrospectives. Um, so this is really exciting. But when I was writing the books, those retrospectives hadn't happened yet. And one of the things that uh, was featured in this 1978 Comrade Women exhibition is a portrait of Goran Kamatic herself uh, as a really like butch lesbian looking Ira you know, uh, uh, Fassbinder, which of course is an homage to um, Rainer Werner Fassbinder, the queer filmmaker. And uh, throughout writing this, um, you know, chapter on the 70s and thinking about Comrade Women Conference, I contacted Goran Kamatic, I contacted Air People, and I was like, what did they, I want to see the photograph, where is it, you know, <laughs> and no one had it. And, uh, but I had read this amazing description by Jelena Vesic, uh, which really was extremely accurate um, about kind of the butch appearance and the cigarette hanging in the mouth and so on and so forth. So I thought this is really interesting. You have such like butch representation, butch queer representation, Presentation in Yugoslavia during socialism when, you know, in the West, they're telling us that we need a democracy to come and bring, you know, queerness to the region. And so that's the not, whole another thing. I have a whole chapter on, on the 80s, of course, we can talk about later. So this was already amazing to me because it's not only feminist, but there's some kind of queer content underlying this all. And the good, the, the interesting end to this story about the portrait is that uh, it turns out that when the retrospective happened, this was after my book was in production, Goran Kamatic found the photograph <laughs> or the negative. And now now you could actually see it online and when i was allowed to do like revisions i put a little link into the footnote and with great heartache that but the image is not actually in my book but if you read the book you can find the image online okay then the other thing that happened is that i kind of observed a little bit of sexism also within that exhibition and how it was handled and so this was very important to me to always point out on one hand that yugoslavia had this really great space for women to be emancipated etc etc but that that was also constantly challenged by a very patriarchal culture, a, very, a rather patriarchal culture that was also deeply part of the Yugoslav socialist system. So you see how the image of women are, for example, treated. Um, uh, so, so I try to complicate the story because at first when I wrote this book, I wanted to tell the story of women's empowerment and a kind of easy story that was so great. Emancipation was there. Let's look to socialism. Yugoslavia is a great example, etc. But then, of course, if you look closer, you realize, oh, wow, well, even there in that socialist system, kind of patriarchal values really made it difficult for that system to operate in an equal and uh, supportive way for women. So that conference also gave me a chance to, to explicate that. Yeah. <clears throat> You know, that's a great insight into, yeah, these complexities um, of what it meant to... to uh, have feminist position or pursue that agenda within socialist context, Yugoslav socialist context, but also how it was perceived um, by other other feminists of the of the time. And it's a great you know, moment where you bring all this material together. That's 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 you know there, but it's not really easily, um, I guess, accessible or or easy to comprehend as as a, as a, this kind of a story. Um, and I'm glad you were able to retrieve that photo of Goran Kamatic. That's that's fantastic. Um, 
another layer of complication that you sort of introduce in your work is this question of Orientalism. And this really links uh, both with, with how um, these feminist practices operated within Yugoslavia and were perceived externally. Um, and you use um, this trio of superstar women in culture, as you call them, uh, Lepa Brena, so the, the singer that we mentioned, um, Esma Rejapova, another performer, singer, and Marina Bramovic. Um, how is Orientalism manifested in the production and reception of the work of these, these women? And, and how does kind of Orientalism and feminism intersect here in these case studies? Yeah, this is a great question. So um, for maybe it's really useful to kind of point out why I would even go this route. <laughs> because, of course, I want to admit that this was the most fun chapter to write for me and most exciting, um, but also the most risky in a way. So, but I thought a very important one, because one of the things I really wanted to point to was that Yugoslavia is not just like, oh, this is a socialist Yugoslavia, you know, there's all these socialist countries that were happening in the 20th century, here's Yugoslavia. Yugoslavia is extremely complex, and it has all these, like, it's it's a nation that kind of thrived under all these intersecting influences, you know, like the Habsburg Empire, Ottoman Empire, then you have the, you know, the extensive kind of cultural wealth of Roma and Sinti who are in the region, you have Marxist ethics, you have, you know, anti-fascist uh, organizing, you have the partisan revolution, you have the non-alignment, you know, the cultural exchanges between, you know, more than like 90 other countries, uh, it, with, you know, from India, Africa, Latin America, Middle East, etc. So, you know, Yugoslavia was actually an extremely diverse, like it had a lot of diverse influences. It was not behind some iron curtain, you know, and it's kind of stuffy. I, this idea of some like stuffy uh, uh, Cold War communism, you know, it was like a thriving cultural space. And whenever you have that, things get very chaotic, you know, chaotic in a cultural way. And I thought, okay, I have to represent this, this a little bit somehow. And I feel like by going um, into pop culture, because pop culture can hold so many things that contradict and are, you know, we still like it, right? Like we have like guilty pleasures and uh, a culture also never, uh, pop culture never represents reality one-to-one, you know, but it does tell us a lot about what is there regardless, even if it does so in an imprecise, contradictory, and sometimes provocative way and so I thought okay let's let's see who represented some of these chaotic incredibly generative and important characteristics of Yugoslavia and for me the three most famous women to represent Yugoslavia really also during the socialist period and after are Leba Brena of course as the first mega pop star in Eastern Europe, you know, arriving in Bulgaria on a helicopter, people losing their minds. You know, there's a, I always show this, like there's a pizzeria named after her, you know, in Romania, their buildings named after her. I mean, she was huge, right? And also represented the kind of open Yugoslav socialism. And then you have Marina Abramovic, who, you know, okay, in the 70s, she leaves, etc. But she still being analyzed through the lens of socialism. Um, And I talk about this also about her like socialist body and how she was praised for, you know, losing weight. And now she was like dropping off her socialist background, et cetera. And then of course she has been criticized for this extensively for kind of uh, not only critiquing Yugoslavia, but really talking about the more exotic, um, you know, Balkan elements of Yugoslavia in the 1990s during the wartime, and people accuse her of exploiting those. And for me, I'm really not interested in that judgment of whether or not it was exploitative or not, but more like that she was actually still interested or that she became someone people looked to, you know, to understand the region or know more about the region. So she represented the region. And then I wanted to really honor the influence of, you know, ethnic Roma and city in the, in the region. And because that is such an important uh, part of the Yugoslav identity, that's why also Emir Kusturica has had 
enormous success in exploiting stereotypes about ethnic Roma and also, you know, um, identifying uh, through the plight of the Roma in this like really uh, uh, problematic way and often, um, you know, creating very uh, insensitive and racist imagery, etc. So I really didn't want to participate in any of that. I wanted to push up against that by honoring um, also a very complicated and controversial figure, but in, nevertheless, very important uh, representative of Yugoslavia, especially during um, and shortly after it's uh, during the socialist period and during uh, sh- shortly after its disintegration, that's Esma Recipova. And not only because she... Um, you know, toward the entire world <laughs> representing Yugoslavia, but she was also a first, you know, she was the first woman to also sing in um, an Roma language on radio. Um, she was close to Tito. She admired Tito. Tito admired her. She represented Yugoslavia. Um, she also slipped into different kinds of roles. So this is, you know, kind of just to set it up, of course, um, because of her uh, non um how can I say, non-white European background. She also had different kinds of dancing styles, different kinds of clothing that connoted a more Orientalist kind of presence. But she could also play with that and slip into different kinds of clothes. But for me, it was important to um, highlight her presence as someone not only who represented Yugoslavia, but who actually made huge advances for women and who was very... um, aware about the choices she made and who also would speak quite eloquently about those choices much later. So, um, you know, she contained a very important element of Yugoslav history that also people often tend to ignore or tend to exoticize. Um, And then, of course, Lipa Brenna constantly played with Orientalist tropes, also in very (laughs) bizarre ways at times, you know. Um, But that's kind of part of pop culture and part part of that chaotic uh, um, um, energy that I'm talking about. The same goes for Marina Abramovic when, you know, she does works like Balkan erotic epic where women are massaging their breasts and men are fornicating with the earth. I mean, it's a lot of like primitivist kind of aesthetics, reinscribing a lot of stereotypes, but also pointing to a kind of cultural diversity in the region that we all grew up with. And, and so uh, for me, it was like just important to put these three figures together and again, say that, wow, you know, Yugoslavia had this incredibly important system that was deeply patriarchal, but these women um, came out of this very system and showed the multiple, like the multiplicity and diversity of the nation in a really interesting and completely different ways. Um, And also, of course, uh, including um, Lipa Brenna allowed me to speak a bit more about the sexism that she might have endured. you know, finding images of um, that really show the kind of um, sexual harassment she might have endured, or um, also speaking about like Esma Rechepova's fears of um, retaliation and racism in the region itself. Um, and then thinking about all three of them as forces that reminded us that there was a Yugoslavia. So I'll end by saying that um, for me, as someone who comes from working class, you know, Lipa Brenna was kind of pretty important in the 80s, but actually Esma Recepova was a big deal in our family. My father was obsessed with her music, so I grew up listening to her. And then in the 90s, um, when the war was raging, for us, Esma Recepova represented in many ways the unity of Yugoslavia, what could have been, you know, the diversity of Yugoslavia, because all of us coming from Yugoslavia were the new, you know, despised immigrants in in the in the West, in Germany especially. And, um, you know, it just felt extremely um, white and German. And, you know, listening to Lepa Brenna and to Esma Recepova made, felt like home, you know, and Yugoslav- I am Yugoslovenka. Yeah, I, I am that. And I felt that way. And yet my country was disintegrating. And then when I became an academic, 
I learned about uh, Amerina Abramovic. So she's, you know, she's an elite example, but she's nevertheless really important because especially in the last 10 years, she's really entered the popular culture realm with, you know, with her MoMA show. And, um, you know, so, so, you know, how could we ignore a woman like that from the region? <laughs> so, and she just had her retrospective there recently too, so... This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, um, as a as a fun fact, I recently acquired um, what is called a, a sort of a pack of cards, Marina Abramovich playing cards. <laughs> that uh, they are called the Marina Abramovich method, and you can through display cards learn how to apply her uh, strategies where she prepares for her performances to your own life <laughs> in a fun and a and a and a um, yeah interesting way. So I mean, it, she's now completely, I think, entered that. Um, uh, kind of more popular uh, sphere and, and domain with her with her work. Um, yeah, so um, readers will will find this chapter I think really fascinating because really covers not just the story of Orientalism within the socialist context, but also this phenomena that scholars have described as you know self orientalizing or and nesting Orientalisms as well. And it's an extremely complex um, uh, story, and it's a, it's a wonderful how you kind of use these examples to show what Orientalism could do through the figures of three really incredible, incredible artists. Um, we can now move maybe to uh, maybe punk and alternative art. Uh, <laughs> and um, you're, you're, uh, we have a chapter that covers this notion of, of sexual liberation through these kind of alternative art scene, punk, um, alternative art and music that emerged in the West, but was also very influential in socialist Yugoslavia. So how did Yugoslav artists um, engage with these ideas? Oh, yeah, this is also one of uh, my favorite chapters. I always say this about all my chapters. Each chapter has a kind of, I have a love relationship to it at a different time of my life or something. So this is um, something that I had been researching throughout my graduate school career, too. um, And I was super intrigued by it. Because one of the things I wanted to contest was this Western idea that, you know, um, socialism was drab, non sexual place, you know, where people were just going to work, had shortages, stood in lines for bread, you know, those kinds of stories. I wanted to be like, wait a minute, (laughs) Dusha Makaveev, you know, came out of Yugoslavia, like all the stuff I was researching was showing me this, like in the 80s, especially in Ljubljana was so sexually transgressive and amazing. So this chapter is really important as an intervention against a kind of um, monolithic idea of what socialism was like in Eastern Europe and um, really point out the Yugoslav case and um, kind of privilege more of the queer and sexually transgressive work that came out of there. So one of the um, uh, major resources for me was really looking at um, performance work of the alternative um uh, you know, alternative groups, including, of course, very famously, like Borgesia and uh, their collaborations with, uh, you know, such feminist and queer artists as Marina Gruzinic and her, you know, interventions with um, um, kind of queering the female body and um, thinking about queer sexual desire in order to really, like, push up against um, the kind of compulsory heterosexuality politics that they saw were happening under socialism, especially in the 1980s, where things were becoming more and more conservative after Tito's death. Um, And, you know, Tito was like a very well-known womanizer. (laughs) There was something extremely like uh, libidinal about him too, you know, and there's really interesting research on women's desires for him. And, um, you know, and so after he died, not to, I'm not drawing a kind of causal relationship, but for me, it's really interesting how uh, 
um, you know, this turn towards, uh, of course, economic crises and, and so on and so forth and um, uh, neoliberal uh, economics, etc. But also this, you know, surge of nationalism came with this extreme, like hetero, sexual, um, religious kind of politics. And that's why the 80s are so important also in Yugoslavia, because they really pushed against that and the feminist movement did too. So um, in many ways, uh, this leather SNM practices of, um, you know, Borgesia, openly gay cultures within that um, were not just about, you know, obviously embracing sexuality, but really were pushing about against nationalist politics. And so this is a, a really important kind of part of gay history for, for us, for Europe. Um, and then, of course, I also looked at some pop music, uh, you know, uh, the, what could be considered one of the first, if not the first lesbian song, you know, Xenia's Moja Priateza, My Girlfriend, um, also thinking about video sex and the representation of uh, women within that. So for me, that chapter could have, of course, taken many different directions, but I was very much interested in privileging kind of the lesbian history there because it's often overshadowed um, because we do have a kind of male-centered, <laughs> I mean, it's just, you know, male-centered lens is is also something we have to contend with as historians and um, critics. And so here um, I really looked, for example, at VIX magazine. It was an independent uh, alternative, like self-published Samizdat publication. Um, and at early examples of... Um, lesbian work, for example, in, in um, that magazine. And of course, uh, also writing about the first exhibition in 1984, Homosexualnos in Cultura, which happened in Ljubljana, um, which had extremely overtly, um, you know, homosexual content and gay content. And of course, what, what really struck me is that even though... Um, Yugoslavia was not a, not a place to be happy and out gay, you know, but there were laws that protected um, also um, lesbians and gays, um, of course, colliding with a lot of other laws that didn't. But there was a lot of movements towards, um, you know, even theorizing uh, gay marriage and uh, gay adoption and those kinds of things that actually a lot of people would never dream of having been happening in the 80s already in uh, socialist uh, spaces. And in fact, now we can only look at it with great shock because things have become so conservative um, and closeted. And so one of the things I really wanted to do with this 80s period is point out how during Yugoslav socialism, actually, um, there was a robust movement of lesbian activism um, and queer, um, you know, art and, and performance and etc. And that actually the demise of the nation, the disintegration made things much worse for everyone, especially for people um, who were, you know, gay and were now in these new nations that privileged religion and you know, uh, so this was um, uh, trying to, of course, celebrate um, Yugoslav socialism's history, that part of the history, but also point out that actually these artists were also resisting at the same time against more and more conservative um, socialists who were embracing, you know, the socialist system in order to oppress, you know, more, uh, more feminists and also more uh, um, uh, LGBTQ, which of course were not referred to as such at the time, but we talk about them now this way historically. So, um, yeah, that's the story. The 80s is, um, again, you know, I just... It's just the tip of the iceberg of what I discuss. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. I'm, I'm wondering if we could perhaps now move towards disclosing sections of, of, of your book and in particular this moment of, of change uh, from such a, a, a vibrant environment. Yes, that it had its kind of internal struggles, but where still there was space for different groups and different positions towards the moment when the country starts to break apart. And I wonder if you can walk us through a little bit on your writing on, on this position of women and these different communities at that point when this change is taking place. Yeah, this was the really hardest, I think, chapter to write. Um, and I remember when I sent it out, um, you know, to be edited, um, 
the editors said they were crying, you know, while doing this, because it is such a hard story to tell and such a sad story in many ways. So, of course, um, as you say, there was this kind of vibrancy, but, you know, the things were already for a lot of people on the wall, you know, in the late 80s. And then the 90s made things extremely difficult for feminists to organize um, and, you know, obviously, uh queer activism as well, because, you know, things were shut down. Um, a lot of um, the reports I read had to do with, you know, lack of communication, unable to continue the organizing the same way. Um, one of the things that really um, struck me was, for example, uh, Lepa Mladenovich, who was a really important lesbian activist um, uh, in the 1980s, like, starting to help, for example, women who had been raped during the war or who had been um, violated and uh, being extremely invested in helping, um, you know, women who, who had endured such horrific pain and having to then, as a lesbian woman, really retreat back into the closet because now things had gotten so dire that um, even, you know, a kind of gay identity is was a huge threat while being, you know, a person who was helping, right? So, so this going back into the closet in the 1990s for a lot of people was really difficult, but of course they also kept organizing and resisting. And so it's a story of um, trying to unfold the extremely complicated ideological divisions um, and also, of course, how, for example, Milosevic um, and his wife mobilized, you know, uh, Yugoslav socialism in this really nefarious way and how people began to distance themselves from the system because of that mobilization. But for me, uh, um, you know, groups like Women in Black uh, really embodied the best parts of the Yugoslav socialist system, like transnational activism, solidarity. You know, for me, when I saw their banners, um, you know, Alban Kisunasha Sestra, Albanians, uh, the Albanian women are our sisters, you know, that put a tear in my eyes, you know, just idea that um, it doesn't matter what ethnic national background you have, you know, we stand in solidarity with you. And of course, that's something that now people are really looking at um, during the Ukraine crisis. Um, But not only the transnational aspect, but also sort of the collaborative aspect and the mutual support kind of aspect that was super important. Um, And not only that, but putting their bodies into the cities, being one of the first to resist, standing up to these, you know, male leaders. So that's something that I'm really invested in in that chapter. But then also looking at how um, performance artists talked about what it meant now for this Yugoslovenka was in Lepa Brena's uh, uh, case, this gorgeous blonde running in the field, you know, in 1989. And then by 1994, 1995, you know, it's a very different situation. Yugoslav women, you know, uh, violated, um, you know, made fun of. Uh, Shilja Kamaric's Bosnian Girl is an extremely powerful work pointing at also UN uh, a degradation of, of women who were, you know, UN troops who were there to protect them, um, engaged in sex trafficking and rape, uh, just as not as much. I don't want to, again, I want to be careful about drawing any kind of equal sign, but basically the women being at the mercy of militarization for <laughs> From all angles. Exactly. And, you know, and how artists found ways to not only communicate that, but find ways to resist. And then also someone like Tanya Ostoich, you know, really embodying what it meant to be a woman trying to move across these borders and what kind of you know, what it, what kind of toll it took on the body, what kind of strength it took, what kind of different ideological geopolitical lines you would have to have to navigate as a Yugoslavenka, you know, without a nation, without a country. So for me, that chapter was super important because it made a case to the rest of Europe. And I feel also, of course, to the rest of the world that we have not honored stories of these women. These women have a lot to tell us and a lot to teach us about war and about shifting geopolitics, about rights, about borders. Um, And, you know, they often ignored because, oh, yeah, your country doesn't exist anymore. What are you? Oh, you're Serb. Okay. Yeah. You know, you're this, you're that. Oh, you're Canadian now. Oh, well, you know, that war. 
her. Let's move on. And I, I'm like, yeah, sure. You know, it's, but these women, you know, we have so much to learn from them. So that's kind of, yeah. No, absolutely. And I think it's really important. I think you, you noted at the beginning the shift of perspective when we talk about especially Yugoslav wars and process of disintegration. The focus has traditionally in scholarship been predominantly on this milita- militarism, right? the war, the conflict. Um, while the stories of resistance and anti-war movements that were predominantly led by women and women movement were kind of absent and written out and so has their their experience and i think this this work as as uh, difficult as it is to, to read uh puts th- these stories back on agenda um and and um hopefully takes this this kind of opens up this field for 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 further research um i want to uh go back to the question of beauty <laughs> um and uh in your you discuss in this chapter a number of kind of media, but also artworks that focus on female beauty amid the horror of civil war in Yugoslavia. T- tell us how, what is the, the position of beauty in in this uh, very extreme and very violent context. Yeah, this is great. Um, thanks for going back to that. Um, so, one of the reasons I wanted to go this route of thinking through beauty was that one of my political investments of this book is honoring, um, you know, multiple stories, uh, multiple angles um, that don't often get covered in academic discourses or even in art discourses. And beauty is one of those really contested areas. And yet, um, as I mentioned already, when we discussed the Drukta Jena conference uh, in the 70s, it's a big part of uh, Yugoslav women's identity. And um, one of the things I started to think about is, okay, how was Yugoslav women represented in um, Western media? Of course, on one hand, it was, you know, suffering older ladies, etc., with children, grandmas, and suffering women. On the other hand, we have the very famous case of the Miss Sarajevo contest. Um, which was um, memorialized uh, and made very international through U2, the U2 music video with um, Pavarotti. And I wanted to include it because it is an image of Yugoslovenka, you know, right at the time. And I remember even as a child, um, I was very much um, uh, moved by that and upset by it, etc. So um, I thought about, like, how can we not speak about Yugoslovenka with this extremely iconic photograph of beauty contestants holding a banner saying, don't let them kill us. You know, how much more of a plea for like, you know, feminist plea for protecting the body can you get, you know, it's like so banal and so profound and so brave. And so, 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 so this is the beauty yeah. context that t- took place in Sarajevo. Was it one? Three. 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 Right. Yes. Sorry. Yeah, I should have mentioned that. So, and yeah, yeah. Dimension was that I found out that like there was this Vogue article dedicated to it, and so that really uh, pushed me um, to think about beauty further and to also make a case and say, okay, we can be feminists and still celebrate beauty and allow women to honor or to privilege their own beauty. It doesn't have to. Women aren't just beautiful to satisfy men. Women are also interested in their beauty to remain, you know, to feel their own dignity. And this is something that I really started to explore when I was looking at images of snipers, like women snipers especially, um, and how, for example, also their nails were also always really done, makeup, you know. And I really thought about, like, what if we didn't look at this as just this, like, oh, you know, fake um, women dressing up for men. And actually, in one of the articles, um, you know, in the Vogue article, someone said that, oh, yeah, Yugoslav women were always ready to have sex in the trenches, you know. And I thought, okay, like, a lot of these women are actually widows in war, they lost their husbands, you know, they're fighting soldiers. Um, they're most likely not made up to get laid. They're made up for some other reason that people aren't writing about or thinking about, you know, which has a lot to do with themselves and also with kind of keeping intact some kind of normalcy that was attached to their life before, you know. Um, so 
the other thing is that also in queer studies <laughs> or queer culture, there's an embrace of beauty as a form of emancipatory strength, um, of like uh, finding your own sense of beauty um, through uh, severe and horribly traumatic circumstances and finding also unity through that. And so uh, Sheria Kamaric is, you know, the f- a cover of my photo uh, is actually from... Um, um, she was uh, posing as a model for a shoot, um, for a fashion shoot. And the story there is also really interesting because, you know, a lot of performance artists and women are denigrated by saying, oh, well, they're too beautiful. You know, Carolee Schneemann, too beautiful, too sexual, Vlasa Delmar, too sexual, uh, you know, Tanya Stoich, too beautiful, uh, you know, Shia Kamaric, too pretty, etc. And for me, that is an extremely problematic, dismissive stance. And beauty for someone like Shia Kamaric is extremely strategic and political, uh, in, in her work. And so I wanted to honor that. And in fact, that's also in part why she's on, on my cover because it's such a, you know, she evokes such controversy by doing that because feminists often don't embrace it. They reject it, etc. but also it points to a very particular moment during the war. So I just want to mention that because it is related also to beauty and how women are treated within the beauty industries and, uh, and also how uh, models are treated. So she and um, other models during the war, you know, the agency wasn't really working anymore, etc. They had to kind of make a living still. And this Italian uh, photographer came um, who uh, had found out that um, uh, I think it was 100 Deutschmarks were the equivalent of a a pound of sugar or something. I hope I'm not getting the details wrong now. But um, instead of paying them with currency, he had picked up some cheap sugar somewhere and wanted to pay them in sugar, you know, in order to make profit. So war profiteering on these models. And then they resisted and, uh, you know, they demanded fair pay. But this is a perfect moment to talk about the kind of precarity of Yugoslav women. And the other thing that um, is very interesting that I didn't actually get into in the book is that Sheila Kamaric, uh, you know, really felt death as imminent. And she thought, okay, you know, if I get shot now in this outfit, um, you know, I'll end up on CNN, you know, very knowing very well also how beauty is exploited, you know, in the media. So for me, shying away from the question of beauty would have kind of not been um, fair towards the women who worked very hard to maintain um, their outer appearance during extremely difficult times. And I often think that um, those who have privilege, you know, so I'll come squarely back to my own upbringing. You know, we were really poor in in Germany and, you know, I had to make sure I looked fine (laughs) so I wouldn't be denigrated. But those who have money, you know, they didn't have to worry as much. You know, they can wear what they want because they're not scrutinized in the same way. So I think uh, empowerment and beauty, same with the queer community, also comes as as a way to embracing strength. That doesn't mean that we don't, we can't critically engage with, you know, also problems with beauty. But in this case, I looked at the feminist emancipatory power of it. So that's one particular angle. But of course, there's a whole uh, other way of, you know, thinking. Yeah, of course. But it does bring a very different dimension to this history of the war and and, and women's position in in that conflict. And uh, as you say, precarity, no matter which way you you look at it. Um, I wonder if you can, uh, well, Tell us a little bit, uh, uh, um, well, I have a lot of different questions, but perhaps we can uh, go to a really hard question. And that's, uh, is there such a thing as 21st century Yugoslavia? <laughs> oh, yeah, this is so great. I love that you're asking this because um, I think, yes, I mean, we're here, I'm here. But not just that, you know, I what has really been amazing um, and we didn't say this in the beginning, but, you know, I just did this book tour in um, the areas in former Yugoslavia and also in Vienna, Berlin, etc. And, you know, the book just came out a couple of months ago. But one of the things that has really surprised me is um, people are coming forward that were born after um you know, let's say 1996, 1998, 1995, 2002. And they're like, 
oh my God, I am Yugoslovenka. You know, I've been waiting for a book that explains my background because, you know, they were like born in Canada with parents who left Yugoslavia, let's say in, in early 90s. And they have all these values and ideas transported in music and language and also a feeling of unity towards the different former republics. They don't feel like, oh, I'm Serb. They feel like I'm from this big area, you know, and they have friends in different areas. Oh, my cousin lives in Croatia. My grandma lives in Bosnia. You know, there's also that element, right? That there's these families, they weren't all from like one former republic. And so these young generations, especially um, even very surprising for me and exciting, you know, queer young, younger generations who said, you know, I've, I've been looking for something that explains to me why I identify in this very particular non-American or non-Western way, you know, and uh, Yugoslovenka is really uh, helping me through that, you know. So I think that there is a whole another set of generations that is thinking about the potentials of not, you know, can Yugoslavia come back? We don't know, but can we think about the generative elements of it, of how they connect us also within the diaspora or within generations that have long, you know, have been born after? I think there's a lot of potential. So for me, 21st century Yugoslovenka is like uh, a beacon of hope in many ways, you know? Yeah, absolutely. But also, you know, mm. cautioning tale, cautioning tale yes absolutely that's that's certainly the case and there are certain uh, values within that system uh, such as you know solidarity or supra-ethnic concept of supra-ethnic identity or internationalism that are hugely important today and that certainly the Yugoslav experience has a lot to to, um, add add to Um, Yasmin it was really fantastic to talk to you about your book I'm very grateful Um, I uh, as a Yugoslovenka myself I can say huge huge uh, thank you for sharing your research and, and bringing this wonderful material together, which I'm sure was not an easy uh, task, and bringing these stories together to show a very different um, and enrich, really, this uh, story of Yugoslav experience of experience of Yugoslav um, women. I'm. I wonder if you can share with us uh, for for uh, the end. What are you working on at the moment? Oh, yeah. Okay. So as you can tell, you know, I'm like, uh, I could talk and talk (laughs) about especially the 90s onward. So um, really, the last chapter, I got, you know, I really explored, kind of, I made the case for why we have to look at this um, Yugoslav region and why we have to look at it through this uh, lens of Yugoslavenka. And so in that chapter, I only got to touch on a couple of contemporary artworks. But in I'm working on a second book now that's really invested at you know, looking and unfolding and expanding this kind of theories of diasporic identities in Yugoslavia by focusing more directly on contemporary artists from the 1990s and after from the region and within the region and really thinking about the idea of diaspora in itself, like what does it mean to be um, from, feel like a Yugoslav in in Serbia or what does it mean to feel like a Yugoslav in Germany or uh, to be interested in the Yugoslav legacy of uh, anti fascist resistance, for example, which is extremely, like a lot of contemporary artists are interested in it right now. And really thinking about how that helps us uh, uh, engage with questions of citizenship and nationalism at the intersection of gender, migration, and um, exile in contemporary art. So my next project is really all about um, looking at contemporary art objects. And I one thing that I got to explore in this first book also is kind of breaking through this elite uh, division between, you know, high art and contemporary art and pop culture. And I also want to make sure that um, I in this, I continue that tradition in this uh, new book uh, as well. But look, so that will also include more work than just performance work. It will also include video work and film and those kinds of things. So... Yeah, that sounds really exciting. Um, good, good luck with your research, and and I hope you will be back uh, on NBN uh, to to share your your uh, next book with us and 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 keep talking about Yugoslavenkas and similar uh, concepts. Yasmina, thank you so much again for sharing your work with us today. Thank you, Eva. What an honor to talk to you, and thanks to our listeners. So.